Hello and welcome to The Green Canary. This week on the show, well, things are going to be a little bit different because I am missing my usual co-host, Aunt Sharwood, who is off doing what he loves to do, which is be in the snow. And I hope that he's enjoying a really well-earned break. I'm Elfie Scott. I'm a journalist and a writer, and I will be your host of the show today. Today, I've got a really interesting interview coming up for you with a special guest. That's Dr. Sophie Lewis. She's a climate scientist and researcher in a not-too-distant past. We'll actually speak about why she is no longer a climate researcher, but for the most part, we're going to be focusing on talking about kids and the future of the climate. So what are the sort of things people are thinking about before becoming a parent these days? Should we feel scared for the future of our children? And what's happening to a generation of young people who are considering having children, but are just feeling a little too uncertain about the whole thing right now? That generation includes me. So I thought that that was a really interesting conversation. But before we get to that, here are some headlines of what's happening in environmental news this week. So first up, the Environment Council of Central Australia have written to the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek requesting that she reconsiders how coal and gas projects have been assessed. Basically, under federal environment law, the minister has to consider like how coal and gas projects may affect species and sites, but they don't have to think about how activities could contribute to climate change or any of the flow-on effects. So what the Climate Council are doing is they're arguing that the minister now needs to consider how these projects are likely to damage over 2,000 areas and species, which are of huge national significance. That's things including the Great Barrier Reef, koalas and dugongs. The team actually attached more than 3,000 pages of documents discussing how climate change will impact those species and places. If Tanya Plibersek agrees with the Environment Council, that could have a huge impact in how new coal and gas projects are assessed for approval. But even if Plibersek doesn't agree, this could head to court and be decided there. And that would set a really important, huge legal precedent. Uh, Looking at this story, it actually reminded me of the Australian Conservation Foundation's legal bid to stop Woodside's gas project in WA. If you haven't heard the episode that we did about that, we actually spoke to somebody from the Conservation Foundation about that. And they spoke about how even though the Great Barrier Reef is on the other side of the country to Woodside's project, it's still serious enough impact that it needs to be taken into consideration. In other news, the Pacific Island Forum is happening this week and Australia will be there trying to probably simmer down tension following the recent deal signed between China and the Solomon Islands. But still, Pacific leaders are saying that climate change is easily the biggest threat to the region. And in the lead up to the forum, they called on Australia to increase our 2030 climate targets. So the former presidents of Tuvalu, Kiribati and the Marshall Islands have all released a statement saying that working together in driving global climate action is key to Pacific security. They've also said that Australia's most meaningful support for Pacific priorities would be to back them in all that they need at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt in November. So yeah, if they're trying to make good with the Pacific, that would be the way to do it. And finally, in some cuter, furrier news, because Ant and I always love wrapping up news segments on animals, scientists are doing their best to restore New South Wales' first population of the Mitchell's hopping mouse in almost two centuries. 
They've put in a group of about 150 hopping mice into a place called Mallee Cliffs National Park, which is nearish Mildura. I looked it up on Google Maps. It's down there near the border of Victoria and South Australia. But basically, the mice are protected by high electrified fences to keep cats and foxes out of there, which gives them about 9,000 hectares to live in. And this is actually part of New South Wales' broader project to boost and return the wild populations of species that became extinct in New South Wales. And if you're wondering, I did Google what the mice looked like. And when I say that these mice are cute, I mean that they're like dumb cute. They look like normal mice very much, except for the fact that they have these like wildly long kangaroo type legs and huge ears. I would highly recommend going to Google them. All right, but that is all the news that we have for this week. Now let's hear an interview that I did with the wonderful Dr. Sophie Lewis. We had a really great chat. And before we get into this, I just want to thank Sophie again so much for her time. All right, here we go. All right, so Dr. Sophie Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on The Green Canary today. Thank you. Do you mind walking me through some of your history of research? Because I know that you've done research in the past into things like climate variability and investigating the causes of climate change events in Australia. Sure. So, um, yeah, I started off doing my PhD looking at really long-term climate history, so what was happening over thousands of years. And that was really fun, but when it came time to get the next job, I really wanted to look at something that was a bit more kind of tangible and relevant to you know, the lives that we're living. And I was really lucky to get a job looking at how climate change is impacting extreme weather and climate events. Like that question, every time we have a flood or a heat wave is, you know, was this related to climate change? Is climate change making these events worse? And I did that for about, I don't know, maybe like 10 years. And that was really rewarding and fantastic, but it was also really hard going. especially after events like the Black Summer bushfires. Um, Emotionally, it was really hard to keep doing that work with that kind of bigger context of, you know, the politics and how the science is used. And uh, eventually I realised that a research career wasn't for me and I made a switch and now I'm working uh, alongside government in the ACT to try and improve what's happening here locally. Sure. Sure. When you say that you were becoming emotionally impacted by the research that you were doing, could you speak to that in a little more detail? Like, was it to do with your assessment of environmental events as being related to climate change? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you spend a long time working on a scientific paper and I don't want to diminish the value of that. We need the scientists. It's fantastic that people find that really rewarding and they're really deeply um involved in that but for me I'd work on these scientific papers that take a year or two years and would say something and then would publish something the following year that was different but similar message and I didn't feel like that was kind of penetrating any of the kind of action on climate change Mm -hmm. and then at the same time as that we were starting to really intimately experience these weather and climate events so you know I mentioned the black summer bushfires and that was a real turning point for me was Here in Canberra, we had weeks and weeks of this horrific smoke and we were ringed by fire, we'd had drought, we'd had heat waves and it was that knowing that climate change was impacting my life and my little girl's life and feeling like all these hours that I was putting in, I was working at that time also as a 
lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, that um, big IPCC assessment report, putting in all these hours and feeling like that was just like pushing against a mountain. Um, so for me, that was what I meant about that kind of emotional. It wasn't just the science. I felt like I was living the science. I was seeing that play out in my life. Yeah, yeah, sure. As well as being a researcher who is working on these reports, it must be kind of strange taking into account the political aspects of this. You're spending months, if not years, working on this research and figuring out the truth of what's happening and what's driving these events and then seeing that nothing is being done on the big political scale it needs to, and a lot of that research will just be going into these battles and that sort of rhetoric. Did you have to switch off reading headlines at all, especially during the Black Summer? At that time, I should have, but I didn't. I just leaned into it. I just consumed everything, um, and it was really hard. So it, by New Year's Day uh, for 2020, January 1st, 2020, um, the smoke was so bad in Canberra, we had to leave. And I was really lucky that I have a brother who lives in Hobart and he got us on a plane, was like, just we'll sort it out. And I went with my little girl and I spent 10 days there with her having this just beautiful summer holiday. It was just idyllic. But at the same time, our home was on fire and people were losing their lives. We were losing billions of animals. Mm -hmm. And to me, it all just felt senseless like there'd been warning after warning after warning for decades that we had to be prepared for these events and to me it felt like this enormous betrayal of leadership that there were people at the south coast fleeing for their lives when we'd had months and months of time to prepare for those fires but to me there was just this void of political leadership that no one had done anything and people had been abandoned on their own the only person there to help was your neighbor the rfs volunteer that the person within your community and there was no faith to be had in our kind of government and our institutions yeah absolutely and did you feel similar when you saw the flooding on the north coast earlier this year when we saw people being abandoned in much the same way to me, it was actually kind of worse because we, we'd been through this horrific, catastrophic event um, with the Black Summer fires, which, I mean, they weren't a summer fire. They went over months and it was more than just a fire. There were so many aspects of that, that event that impacted people's lives and our environment. But then to go back and do it again two years later, to not, to not see the forecast, the projections, to not prepare people, to not think what we have in place that it felt like well we've we've learned nothing as a um as you know a society do you see the same sort of emotional reactions from your peers and colleagues and other people who work in similar fields of research to yours yeah I'm not sure about the the floods in um, northern New South Wales Queensland because I've stepped out of the field but certainly the case for the fires um was this sort of feeling of being unsurprised at what was playing out, but also kind of deep shock and grief and sorrow to see um, what we should have been more resilient to really being unprepared for. But um, maybe some people are more able to focus on the value of the science and, and I'm just an emotional person. I cried it and crying's my, my go-to. So maybe I was the one who cried through the summer while other people turned that emotion to their work. I, th I think a lot of people cried through that summer. Can I ask, how has your research sort of fed into your philosophy and way of thinking about the future in general? Is there a certain outlook that you've adopted now because of it? 
Um, yeah, so this is something I've really grappled with is, you know, looking at these projections for our climate future and knowing that that black summer occurred when we'd had just over one degree of warming, but knowing that we're on track to exceed three degrees of global warming. So what's what's going to be our summers of the future? Um, and that's something I've really struggled to work through. Um, but I think I do take a lot of confidence and faith and optimism from, from those events, as horrific as they are. Um, time and time again, neighbours and family and friends and community show up for each other. And what has got us through those events, the, you know, the person who turned up in the, the tin boat to help a neighbour in floods, um, that's kindness. And to me, like deeply investing in, in being kind to each other um, now is our strategy for the future. That That is how we will cope. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great way to look at it. Now, can I ask you specifically about the feeling of climate change as a parent? Because I think for a lot of people in my generation, uh, people in my age bracket specifically, we're looking towards the future and feeling very uncertain about having children. And I was wondering how you feel about being a parent now and especially being a parent during something like the Black Summer. Yeah, I mean, it's everything. It's just, I mean, anything with children is just a big messy ball of emotion. So, uh, you know, I really did think while we were trying for our kids, our, our kids did not come easily. We put a lot of effort and emotion into having our beautiful kids. And throughout that time, there was a lot of, well, well, why are we doing this? Like, will, will, what will their future be like? Is this, you know, a moral, ethical thing to do? Um, but really, at the end of the day, I had a deep desire to be a parent and having a baby is just the deepest joy that you bring into your life and into other people's lives. And to me, having, you know, I could have lived a life without children where I would have been unhappy and unsatisfied. Um, but instead, we made a decision to you know you kind of embrace that joy and hope and for us that was the right decision um but it, again it is still really hard because my my little boy turned one a couple of weeks ago and I think oh, how crazy is anyone to have a post bushfire baby why do you you know he'll be alive when these projections play out in 2100 so it is really hard to think about you know what are we locking in now um collectively for their future and and how will they cope? And it's not just my children. I'm, I'm really lucky. I've got a solid job. I've got a beautiful home here. And I think, well, my kids will probably be okay. But we do know that climate change is going to really amplify inequalities. So people who start off with health concerns, chronic health conditions, people who don't have as much in terms of, you know, their social or economic capital are the ones who are going to be most deeply affected and I don't want my kids to be fine I want everyone's kids to be fine and thrive so I find that really hard thinking yep we're we're trying to build beautiful little humans who have strong values and kindness and have you know a good education and understand what the challenges are but it's not about my kids it's about everyone's kids yeah I think that's such an important point when you say that climate change is going to be driving inequality, what are the biggest factors that you're thinking about there? So I think, um, I mean, it's across all scales. So 
you know, in Australia, we're likely to do better than, you know, um, developing countries, but also we know that there's huge disparities within Australia, within cities, um, and climate change is going to exacerbate all of those. So a big one I think of is health, the health impacts of climate change. So the best strategy for adaptation and resilience is having good health to begin with, but not everyone has access to that either because, you know, of biology, but also because of their economic status. Um, you know, not everyone has the same access to secure housing, to good jobs, all of that kind of thing. So um, the adding on climate change to those disparities within a city is going to increase them and entrench them. God, yeah, it's a huge amount to think about. How do you sift through those ideas now? Like, do you find yourself having to speak to other parents or your partner about these sort of things a lot? About climate change and parenting? Absolutely, all the time. Um, and especially um, after the summer fires, I think it's all anyone wanted to talk about is, you know, how do we raise our children in a, in a time when, climate change is right in front of us or for other people um, other friends who hadn't yet started families who are thinking why do I want to do this what you know is this is this a good thing for me to be doing um, yeah it's something that I think a lot of people are asking about that is fairly recent I don't think you know 10 years ago 15 years ago people were wondering um, you know, is, is climate, I think if you thought is climate change something I should be considering in my decision of whether or not to parent, I think people would have thought you're a bit crazy. Yeah, sure. But you feel like it's becoming a lot more socially acceptable to speak about now? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's just one of the factors in people's decision making. There's all sorts of other things around like, you know, their personal desires and aspirations and career and how they perceive the suitability of their partner to parent or whether they want to parent alone. You know, it's one, one factor in there, but it's certainly an important one for, for a lot of people. Now that your career has turned towards something a little more community-based and you're not so entrenched in the research, do you feel like you've been able to put those bigger feelings aside that you had in your previous work or do you feel like that's still there? It's just in more of maybe like a targeted and localised way? Yeah, definitely the, the latter. So I think it's all still there. Um, I think I just feel much more empowered positively. So um, before I felt just overwhelmed by the scale of the problem, I was researching global issues, uh, also what was happening here in Australia, but these huge intractable global problems and I was focusing on that. But now because my role is very tightly scoped around the ACT. It's a beautiful little little place. Um, there's, I feel like there's much more opportunity to see the good occurring, to see where action's taking place, to see where we're improving. And to me, that has been so critical to feel like we're making progress, even if it's you know small things or local. I, I think that's so important for us is to have that that sense that things can and do get better. Do you recommend that to everyone else who is still feeling those bigger feelings around climate change to sort of uh, focus on the things that we have control over? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think perhaps some people are more kind of mentally resilient to those huge, huge problems and the, the huge scales, whether it's the time scale or the spatial scale. But I think for most of us, um, we want to know what we can do. So 
um, my office published a report last year looking at um, greenhouse gas emissions in the ACT. And the question that we got asked all the time about it was, well, what can I do as an individual? And I think I was a bit surprised by that because, you know, I'm thinking, well, it's not your fault. Climate change isn't your fault. You're not personally responsible. You know, let's start talking about um, huge global economies, big countries, you know, big corporations that are the big emitters get your takeaway coffee you have your baby that's not the issue but people want to know that makes people actually feel really empowered and um, as though they're contributing positively to the world so I think sometimes when when things seem inconceivably weighty focusing on what you can do is actually quite liberating. It doesn't make people feel guilty and personally responsible. It actually makes them feel like, hey, how I spend my money actually matters. You know, the company that I buy this from, whether, you know, they have these values or these values, that's actually something I can do that matters. Um, so, yeah, that, that to me that worked really well and I think that applying that in different ways is also effective for other people. Yeah, totally. I think that's such an important point. So, Speaking about personal responsibility, I think that um, sometimes people do have this overinflated sense of personal responsibility when, in fact, you know, we should be looking to governments and corporations to seriously change our future. And something that I hear a lot from people is that they're worried about the carbon footprint that their children will produce. And that gets into a lot of muddy territory about worrying about overpopulation. Um, is it worth pointing out to people that population size isn't the main issue we need to discuss? Like we actually just need to start talking about switching to renewable energy to maintain that bigger population. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. So, um, you know, there's projections for how Canberra's population is going to grow over time or Australia's. And um, often people in the community will talk to me and say, hey, we're missing the issue here, which is overpopulation. And I'm thinking, oh, to me, really, is that the major issue? I think the issue is overconsumption. It's how we live within our environment. And um, it's that we consume too much of our environment and extract too much. It's not how many people are doing that. If we lived a more sustainable lives collectively and we had the support and the government private sector drive to do that would be consuming far less it doesn't matter how many people there are so yeah I get a bit frustrated with that I'm like if you want to have 12 kids and that is what feels right for you why why should anyone feel guilty for their fertility choices I mean good on you um it sounds very tiring to me having 12 kids but you know if if a large family is what suits your life why why should you take on responsibility for what's going on well beyond your control. Yeah. So I think for me, it comes back to the consumption. It's, you know, how big are the houses we need? How much consumer goods do we need? How are they produced? What are they um, made in factories that are driven by renewable energy? Are they, are we recycling? Are we reusing? You know, it's, it's much more about that than how many people there are and how many kids a, a young woman has. Yeah, completely. Can I ask how you're feeling now that we've got that new Labor government with higher targets by 2030? Does it give you a sense of hope or does that 43% emissions target just make you kind of want to continue in the fight? Um, I think both. So um, after the election, I was feeling really good 
um, and not necessarily because we had, you know, Labor over Liberal or anything like that. I'm actually not that interested in politics. But to me, it was that that suite of representatives that was put forward by the Australian people that really reflected what we're hearing time and time again throughout election cycles is that the Australian people really deeply care about the environment and climate change. And we have for a long time. And again, it's just one of the things that concerns us, you know, especially when people are struggling to, you know, get to work because they can't afford to put petrol in their car. People have a lot of, you know, priorities and focus points. But year after year after year, surveys show how much Australians care about climate change, climate action and the environment. And then to have a parliament that, that demonstrates that to me was, you know, a really beautiful thing to see. But also, we can always do better. There's more ambitious jurisdictions. There's more ambitious pledges. And I think, um, you know, now that we have some momentum going is the time to keep pushing. Can I ask you one final question? Are your kids as interested in nature and the climate and science as you are so far? Um, Well, Ash is just a little baby. Um, So (laughs) he's a... So whatever interests his big sister and my daughter is nearly five. Um, she loves being outside. We're a big believer in outside time. So for, you know, thousand hours a year outside. So they both love nature, but um, unfortunately her big passion is medical procedures. Ever since she was a little baby, oh, she's been obsessed wow. by like getting a flu shot or, um, you know, <laughs> visits to the dentist or the doctor. So unfortunately I don't think she'll be following her mama. Yeah, but she might be a doctor. Let's be fair. Yeah, maybe maybe a nurse or a doctor or a midwife, something like that. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Sophie Lewis, for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you. That's all we have time for on The Green Canary today. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're working, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. And if you would like to keep up with The Green Canary between our episodes, please make sure to head to our Twitter, which is at Green Canary Pod, or our Instagram, which is at Green Canary Media. We also have a newsletter coming out this week that is going to be written by yours truly while Ant is away. That will be an experimental one, but we'll see how it goes. And if you want to receive that email, all you have to do is send an email to hello at thegreencanary.co. All right. Well, thank you so much again. And we will see you for next week's episode when Ant is back from the snow and I'm not so lonely in the studio. All right. Bye.